All right. Well, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, I'm still a little bit undecided uh, if we're going to make it to the end of the Book of Mormon by December. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to be really, really honest, I thought I had it figured out, and I was sitting there the other day, and I'm thinking, we can talk about this, and we can talk about this, talk about this, and then I went, oh my gosh, I forgot ether. <laughs> it's only a chap. You know, it's only one book. So we're going to have to, that, that may have thrown the plans off. So what I'm thinking is, is that we're going to get as far as we get. If we get to the end of it, we will. If we don't, we'll kind of, this winter semester will start. When we get done with that, then we will, right behind that is coming church history. Because I real, there's so much new information that is just coming almost weekly in terms of our history with the Joseph Smith papers and all those kind of things. So when we get done with the Book of Mormon, we will start with church history whenever that is. We hope we know when that is. Uh, but the nice thing about this class is we can do that. Alright, so wanna, so today uh, I wanted to jump ahead. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead and then I'm going to pop backwards because then it's going to give you an idea of what we're looking at. Uh, every prophet in every dispensation would give their eye teeth and maybe even their firstborn if they thought at the end of their ministry, their people would have 200 years of righteousness. I can't imagine any prophet that just that wouldn't be his, his or her uh, uh, goal, dream, wish, prayer, desire. 200 years of righteousness. They pull it off. These up and down Nephites who were all over the place and, and you almost get an indication that maybe the anti-Nephi-Lehi's by now are gone. They've gone, they keep moving farther north every time there's a war. So they're, I think the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are out of the picture. This is, this is the mercurial bipolar Nephites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they're gone. Was it from then on every child that was born, or were they changed immediately? Good question. I don't know. But so 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 we're so if we get this in our mind, we go okay. There's this 200 years of righteousness. Then the next question would be, how'd they get there? How did they do this? How did this work? What happened here that hadn't happened in any other time or place? Now, if we're going to go back and look at Zion societies, we only have just a, a handful, right? Who else managed to pull off the Zion thing? Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek did, and Enoch did. If we go back to that, and uh, does that, and what happened to them? They got pulled off the earth. <laughs> they go away. Okay? So their way of preserving that Zion society is that they were no longer here. They leave. Okay? Um, now, it wasn't that they had, didn't have oppositions. Remember, Enoch's plopping mountains in the way and rivers in the way and, and, and they're giants in the land. And we're going to quote from a little bit of, of Enoch in a minute. Okay? But they're, they're pulled off the earth. Okay. Who else managed to pull off a period of uh, Zionness? ness 
Huh? Yeah. In Kirtland, we managed to pull off the Zion uh, thing, uh, and that and that came right with the with the dedication of the temple in 1836. So you get to March and April of 1836, and they and Zion breaks out, and everything is lovely. What squirreled the deal in Kirtland? The bank. And we will talk about that next semester. So they were doing, they're riding along high, and then thing is wonderful. We have all things in common, and the bank shows up, the Kirtland Safety Society. And we'll talk about that. And then Joseph was then running for his life almost just a year later, in the middle of the night, to get out of town because it was so bad. Okay? Zion crashes quickly. Who else? Yeah, we, we were just saying that we, so we had Melchizedek and we had uh, Salem or Jerusalem. Okay. What about, where's the first Pentecost experience that we know of? After Christ. Okay. That there, that this is uh, 40 days, 50 days after. It's the uh, Feast of Sovyot. Sovyot. I'm slaughtering that. And, Pentec and they show up for that, the Feast of Weeks. And here comes uh, Peter and the gang, and they now have a Pentecost experience. They now live Zion. What happened there? They were they able to maintain Zion? Nope. Why? Jews? Romans? The fall of Jerusalem. There's a lot of things that, that come into play. Okay, so when we're looking at this 200 years of Zionness and all things in common and things are going well, this is a unique situation. That's why it bears, I think, if we see that this is where we're going, now it bears backing up a little bit and going, how'd they pull this off? And, and the question then is, are there elements here that we can roll into our own lives and our families and our quorums and classes that maybe kind of have that breathe of that spirit? Okay, thank you. And thank you, everybody. Um, so, let's, let's hop to uh, 3rd Nephi 26. Now this is coming after the fact that uh, he's made sure they edited their records. Everything that uh, uh, was taught by Samuel the Lamanite is going to be included. He wants to make sure the records are fine. There are certain uh, books that he needs them to, to, to hear. He's quoting from Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah. Uh, he's quoting from uh, what we now have as uh, Malachi, verses uh, chapters 3 and 4. He makes sure that they have that. Okay, so he's doing all of those things. Okay, and then, so it came to pass, verse 1, that when Jesus had told these things, he expounded them to the multitude, and he expounded all things unto them, great and small. Three, he did expound all things from the beginning, when he should come in his glory. Four, unto the great and last day. 
And then Mormon, you get, you always get this feeling that poor Mormon's sitting in a cave somewhere <laughs> and he's writing, he's looking at it and he's looking at the amount of plates he has left <laughs> and he's got to be thinking, I just don't have the time or the ability. And even when he's willing, the Lord goes, no, don't write that. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Uh, don't write that. L leave that part out. Uh, they're not going to be ready for that. Um, the Gentiles are going to struggle just with 2 Nephi. So, um, verse 6, there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach unto the people. Wow, you did, there was a lot there. Okay? Um, and, and seven, these plates of Nephi contain the more part of the things he taught the people. The, be, the, the most important parts here, these things I have written are a lesser part. I have written them to the intent they might be brought unto this people from the Gentiles. So I wrote it, so make sure that these people, who is he writing, who does he want to have these records? The, the residue of Jacob, which would be the Lamanites. I need the Lamanites to get this. And the Lamanites are going to get this where? From the Gentiles. From us. Because I need these people specifically to know the promises the Savior made to their ancestors. But it's going to come on the backs of the missionaries and the Gentiles. That's going to be us. There's the requirement. From the Gentiles, verse 8. And when uh, they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, if they'll read them, then they'll get more. Now, I, I don't know how we sometimes picture in our mind the story of the Savior coming to the Nephites, but I need you to see it as a much broader picture. There's so much more going on here than we have recorded. Uh, 13. I would that you should behold that the Lord truly did teach the people for the space of three days. So there's a three-day concentrated period where he's coming and teaching and we have the, the, uh, the temple experience that we talked about and all of those. He did show himself unto them oft. When? After. The Lord truly did teach his people for the space of three days and after the three days he did show himself unto them oft so we have this three day period where we have the most intense conference and then they kind of go back home and they start doing their thing and what's happening he keeps showing up and you know you might have well we're having sacrament meeting today Savior's here and he's the one preparing the sacrament and he just keeps kind of showing up and teaching and loving them and filling in more details. How's that experience? Would that think that? How, how would that uh, help sacrament meeting attendance? <laughs> you know, when we have a general authority in town, don't we go? Well, Elder Holland's in town. He's going to go to somebody's sacrament meeting. <laughs> Might be us. Show up. Okay, we'll be there. Okay. So he shows unto them oft and did break bread and bless it and gave it unto them. Now, look at 14. 
So the, the 14 and 15 is kind of the crux of what jumped out at me this week. It came to pass that he did teach and minister unto the children. Uh, how many had uh, primary program yesterday? That's, isn't that great? We're doing it on the heels of this. Okay. Um, did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude uh, of whom has been spoken. He did loosen their tongues and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things. But I want you to take the two parts in green and put them together in verse 14. Because I need you to hear the exact phrase. It, he did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude even greater than he had revealed unto the people. And he loosed their tongues that they could utter. Now watch what happens here. 15. And I put this in brown, the light brown and 15 so you can see those two together. And it came to pass that after he had ascended into heaven and had shown forth his power unto them and had ascended unto the Father. So what's going to come after verse 15 is after he's actually ascended into heaven. Does that make sense? So he's not there with them in this particular moment. He's gone. Okay. By the way, do, do we, always, we always forget in 15, he did manner, manner of cures among them and raised a man from the dead. So we don't always realize that, that he did that. But, okay. It came to pass, 15, after he descended unto heaven and he'd shown his power unto them and ascended unto the Father, what happens? 16. And it came to pass on the morrow that the multitude gathered themselves together. Savior's not there. And what happens? What are they coming to hear? Who's on the sacrament meeting program? The children. They both saw and heard these children. Even babes did open their mouth. And listen closely. This is amazing. Even babes did open their mouths and utter marvelous things. And the things which they did utter were forbidden. That there should not any man write them. Eighteen and many of them saw and heard unspeakable things which are not lawful to be written. Okay? Now... I take that to mean that they're being taught by the kids. Now, in what setting? Well, let me just, let me just say, I, I'm making I'm going to make an assumption here. What would have to be happening for people to be showing up and the Savior's not here? For the children to be uttering all kinds of amazing, wonderful things without the presence of the Savior being there. What would you guess is going on? Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost in great power. In amazing power. What's going on here? What would we tie this into? Where else would this experience might have occurred? Pentecost. It is Pentecost. Does that make sense? I'm, for the for sake of our discussion, I'm going to assume that if this is not Pentecost, it's, it's a Pentecost-like experience 
where the Savior isn't here, but the, but the Spirit is filling them and they are uttering words and they're teaching the people as the Spirit is being poured out among them. Now, one of the reasons why I believe that this is a Pentecost-type experience is that if you'll notice, when dispensations, big dispensations get started, they have a Pentecost-type experience. This seems to be part of that. So, um, let's see, I think I put it in here. Nope. I'm just going to go back here. Okay? So, let me ask you a question. Think about a Pentecost type of experience. We're thinking about what happens with the early saints uh, in, in Kirtland. We're talking about uh, the early saints with the Savior in the first uh, century. If people are going to get the gift of the Holy Ghost after they get baptized, why would they need a Pentecost type of experience? Why would they need that moment where the Holy Ghost rushes in such great power and they are filled universally with this and they get up and they start singing in tongues and we're still not quite sure what the cloven tongues are like. I think it is just probably flames. Why would they need a Pentecost experience? Yeah, Tim? Is it, a, is it that they need it or is it a natural following of, of what? They are experiencing at the time that the, the Spirit is so strong. They're so receptive to the Spirit that the yeah. Spirit is able to come in and manifest through these signs and wonders. That if our hearts are in such a place that we can receive this kind of experience. Right. Good possibility, correct? You know, I, yeah, I don't think we can underestimate what happens when hearts begin to knit together in this kind of power. Okay, and, and, and like you say, Tim, it's hard to know whether the, the, the outpouring of the Spirit creates it or that as they're pulling together that that's a natural reaction, but it, but it, it happens, right? It, it is that moment of, of occurrence. So we look at, uh, for instance, I'm going to hop over here to Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Uh, and there's suddenly a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like of fire. Uh, now as I went back and researched the word cloven, it really is describing flames. And I think it's similar to what we get with the Lamanites, the mixture of Lamanites and Nephites in the, in the jail with Nephi and Lehi, and the flames come down over them and they're filled and they're hearing voices and stuff like that. I think it, that's the cloven idea. I think they're just, they're seeing flames. They're seeing celestial burnings. Evan, yeah? Are, are these at the beginning of certain dispensations? 
So, say it again. Are these at the beginning of certain I believe so. She said, is this the beginning of a dispensation? It, it's, it's interesting that when these great dispensations happen of teaching the gospel, it begins with this experience. That this seems to be the, the lead off. Okay? So one of the things we would say about this is there, there's probably, um, when, when uh, President, when we talk about going to the temple and we receive an endowment, to get your endowments? Yes. Is she going to get her endowments before she goes on her mission? Yes, she will. Okay. My son went to his son, and my son went to the temple. He got his endowment. Endowment of what? Knowledge. Knowledge and? Covenant. Covenants and? Power. power. It's a gift. A gift of power that we receive in that place. And, and, and President, why do we send missionaries to the temple to get this endowment of power before we send them out? <laughs> it, it does do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just help prepare them to be out there on their own. Yeah, because they're going to receive something that will fill them, protect them, loosen their tongues, and it's coming in a place that has been cleansed by this power. Okay? It's also coming in a place where there's tremendous unity of, of spirit and feeling. Can you imagine, can you imagine for just a second, if we said, um, here's the basic uh, things you will need for the temple. Everybody gets to make your own temple clothes. <laughs> Here we go again. Here we go again. Why? What would be the problem with, you know, you can, put, you know, you can, you can uh, make it of any cloth, material, you can do it however you, you know. The, the, what, what would happen? There, there would become... Uh, differences financial I mean those the wealthy would be dressed much more magnificently than the poor and so oh, sure. a separation there'd be a division the divisions would pop up sure absolutely I mean you, you start laughing what'd you start picturing everybody's making their own temple clothes <laughs> we have enough problems when it's <laughs> it's true it's true but they would get more ornate and more ornate I mean just think about what happens when they get a step out of their temple clothes and now they're going to put on their wedding dresses oh my gosh I mean it'd be like every, every temple session would be like that I got to have one of those I got wow where did you go to get that you know and the cottage industries that would spring up. <laughs> but the idea of the temple, you're coming into a place of the, where we're dressing very similar. And it's a commonality of experience and spirit and feeling. And this is how dispensations begin. Okay? So, uh, they, they appeared cloven tongues. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay? This magnificent moment. Um, now, I thought this was interesting. I was reading some things. Um, they're coming from all over the place. And uh, 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. 
I read uh, in doing some research on the uh, on the uh, Pentecost experience in the Kirtland Temple. I, I was reading some wagging tongues, going, "I think they just went and got drunk." <laughs> We heard there were like drunken parties going on, and I think that's what it really was. Uh, they don't even know that they're fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> okay? But, uh, uh, but even Peter standing up going, you men of Judea, hey, these men are not drunken. 15, as you suppose. It's the third hour. It's still morning. <laughs> if it was late on, you know, Friday night, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but it's early. Okay? Uh, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Okay, now what was the what would be the result of this experience for these people in first century Jerusalem to have this experience? What's the result of this endowment? Obviously, there were thousands of conversions because of that. Experience. There were thousands. And they could, and and so the purpose of the new tongues they were having was so they could preach. In, that, in their own language. Sure. Okay, and there were. They had a lot of baptism. Also, what would the empowerment receiving, what, how would that help them in their own lives and in this fledgling church now that the Savior has just left? How would that help? Yeah, it gives them an incredible amount of strength. They're, sta they are, they are being able, the Savior isn't there, but they are teaching one another with the same kind of power and fervency that they were beginning to get from the disciples and everything, now they're all doing it. How great is that? It would definitely unite them. It, now, and there's the thing that I guess I'm trying to get to. Thank you. In the process of all feeling spiritual, we talk about they begin to be united. It has this, it has this effect of pulling people closer together. We talk about having a close-knit ward. We draw near to each other. Why? Why would it do that? I think it promotes the true love of Christ. Say, say that again a little louder. The pure love of Christ is there. When, when we are being filled by the Holy Ghost, we're actually being filled with love. And, and I've always said that, that when we feel the Spirit or when we are loved by God, we are being loved by God. Love is an active verb. It's not just a, I, I, I receive His love. It's no, I'm being loved in that moment by Him. If I feel His presence, I'm being loved by Him in that very moment. I'm experiencing that love. Now, if I'm experiencing that love and it is now flowing through me, then what am I have a tendency to do? I'm going to be closer to somebody else because I'm, I'm feeling his love for me. The next thing I do is I love, one, I love somebody else. It just, that's how it works. Yeah. And you can do it with uh, confidence, like 121, wax strong in confidence. Because the Lord wants us to be confident when the Spirit is upon you because it's not arrogance. You are confident you can knit yes. the heart. And isn't that weird? In that sense, filled with that spirit, not only are we confident, but it's not arrogance. And it's a comfortability, and, it, and we can do it. But it's, So it's a humbleness, but a confidence. That's what true love is, right? Yeah. This, this happened in a group with many people when we talked about what happened in the group And if I could really, anything that would be close to that for me personally was whenever we lived in California. Right. The um, open house and the youth um, 
uh, extravaganza and the uh, dedication of the Newport Beach Temple, which all yes. the people from the county paid for that temple ourselves. Right. There was such a feeling of oneness with all of us. It was just, uh, it was a magical month. It really was, and I, and I use that word very loosely. No, I think that's true, but, but okay. But but let me also suggest. I mean, I think there's uh, some other moments. Tell me with MCO right at the end of a song where you have you feel like you have just prepared, 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 and you hit the note, and the spirit is there. How, what's that feeling like? It's incredible. It's a oneness, right? It's a connection. And usually, it doesn't happen for us singing it. <laughs> Many weeks of rehearsals. Yeah, right, right. But I think we have those little moments when, when we suddenly feel, we all feel the spirit at the same time, and we feel bonded, and we feel connected, and we're part of. Yeah. I feel that in the initiatory in the temple, whether I'm there as a patron or as an ordinance worker, there is a sweetness to those sisters that come in there. And you look at those names of those people that they are there for. And I have had more spiritual experiences in the mission for a few years that they are priceless. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a sacrifice and a bonding that's going to go with that. In the NCL choir performance for Mother's Day, I was on the front row over on the left and the young men were lined up on that side and I was six feet from them. And there was a young man that just started weeping, weeping. Yeah, because we feel that bonding when we're suddenly, listen closely, we're all on the same note. <laughs> we're all within the same chord. And it's not disharmony, that's the note before, right? <laughs> uh, man, uh, we made it, and you hit that final note, and now we've arrived. And there's a harmony to that, which I think is interesting. We'll talk about it in a second. At, uh, it is true, and I read again the contemporary account. I thought it was mythology, but it's actually true. One sister describing her experience of going to the Kirtland Temple, um, and they thought that there might be this sacrament meeting, and here comes the rushing mighty wind, and she feels it being lifting, and the spirit and everything, and a man a couple of rows over from her starts to sing in an unknown tongue. And she stands up and sings in harmony with him in the same tongue. Beautiful. That, that musical harmony was, was very real. Yeah. So, no, no hand. Yeah. I was thinking why these experiences happen. We know you're saying all the things that it does. But I think it helps us, helps them, helps any of us who have something similar, not like this, to remember when things get bad so you can have these triggers. I had an experience in 1975 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, it was a district. In all those years, as long as the church had been there, there had never been a new building. Met JP offices, whatever. Uh, church, other churches and stuff. But they built a, like a state center in Scranton. And uh, it was the first time ever. And everybody was so excited. It was a state conference. And the, first, the opening song was the Spirit of God. Oh, yeah. Never heard a song like that before. And every time I hear that song, it's a trigger. Because, because you have a spiritual memory, 
and that's this remembering that we talk about. It leaves a place. Hubie Brown used to say, when we have those experiences, it's like the Holy Ghost burns a, 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 a part of our heart. And it leaves a memory. And so you hear those things and immediately, like you're feeling right now, it just goes, I remember that experience. And it touched me permanently. So is that what... Yes. Well, and and think about like it, with the Nephites, we're talking about two hundred years. You're talking about these kids that have these experience and their parents, and what happens as they raise, as they grow to adulthood. What are they teaching their kids and their grandkids? I was there. I felt it. Here's the memory. Here's the tears. I feel that and I remember that experience. So I think a similar experience was when after King Benjamin spoke to his people and yes. they were all feeling that experience. However, what happened to the next generation? So how did they do it for 200 years? Cindy and I were having the same experience. In that case, because that, that's a really good example, and th this will tell us that you go to uh, Mosiah 26, and it says, and they, they lived in harmony, and remember, King Benjamin was a Baptist. <laughs> you know, he didn't have yet the priesthood. They weren't baptizing yet. That comes when Alma shows up and organizes the church. But he's talking about love and taking care of one another, and we're going to be there for another, and we know that our hearts are changed, and all that thing is occurring. And then we get to Mosiah 26, and what do we read? There were many in the rising generation that could not remember the words of King Benjamin, therefore they did not believe. And included in that would be Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah. Okay, I have another hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on. You must know this. Yes. Yeah. There was something that happened in this experience where the younger generation got it. And in fact, the younger generation is is not just feeling the spirit. They are they're teaching it. It's, it's coming from them. Okay. They're not just hearing it. They are the teachers. As the, that's why I think it's a Pentecostal kind of experience. Yeah. And it affected how they lived their lives. I, I found this quote in the Book of Mormon reference companion. And it talks about how they, they satisfied the criteria of being a righteous and holy people. They eliminated contention because of their love of God. They, um, the, the classes were eliminated. They, the poor were taken care of. And it just said that there could not be a happier people. So when we think that having lots of money makes us happy, in this situation, the people were on an equal plane, and they were ha the happiest of all people. Yeah, hold on to that for a second. That's where we're going. I had another hand. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show how important it is not just to teach our children, but they to... Give them the opportunity to experience this. Yes. Understand that. And, and, and let me just say this. There's a vast array of difference between I told them and they experienced it. I taught them, which oftentimes, depending on how we're doing it, it could be a lecture, it could be telling them. 
I mean, how often as seminary teachers or Sunday school teachers do you feel like you're like Charlie Brown, the adults in Charlie Brown cartoons? But the parents are living it, though. I mean, the kids can see the parents. Have that helps. That that's the beginning. But they have to have their own experience. Yeah. Okay, well, I have a question. So these children were uttering all of these things. Yeah. They, so, well, they couldn't be written down. Yeah. Okay. But my question is, did those, did those, since they couldn't write it down, and all, all those people heard all of that, would they, would they be teaching that, you know, to, to their children and generations, even though it wasn't things that were, you couldn't write down, but they could say them still, right? I think it would be, let's see if I can hit this right on here. Uh, Romans 8. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Romans 8:26 Likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we not know what we know not what we should pray for as we ought but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered and Joseph Smith changed it with groanings uh, that cannot be expressed he that searches the heart knoweth in the mind of the spirit he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will. In other words, I think there were times that the kids were teaching things that were so amazing and so powerful. They weren't writing them down. But it wasn't so much the words that were being conveyed. It was the power of the spirit at the moment that was marking their hearts and leaving them with an indelible experience that would carry them forward so that as they were trying to teach the next few generations, their ability to say, I can't even be begin to tell you what that felt like. I can't even begin to tell you that that experience. Um, it, it's, it's similar to uh, I guess my own my own experience with um, as a as a youth sitting in the uh, in uh, the conference center uh, as listening to uh, Harold B. Lee who had just been uh, sustained as president of the church and, and him saying in that setting, um, he says, uh, the spirit in this conference has been unusual. He says, I believe that had there been greater, I can't remember the word he used, uh, striving. Stri yeah, greater striving on our side, there might have been no veil. And then uh, he, he, and he, at that point, he, I noticed from where I was sitting, he was, he was looking at notes and he'd put it down and he was talking from his heart. Um, and, and then he went on to relate a couple of other experiences. He had a dream where he, he, saw, he saw people jumping up in this, in this conference setting and speaking in tongues. And, and, and then he said, and I seem to have, hear the words of President David O. McKay saying, if you want to learn to love God, learn to love and serve the people. That is how you show your love for God. And, and President Lee is, is weeping as he's saying this. 
He finishes the conference. He sits down. We have the closing song, closing prayer. Uh, we get done. He stands up. We stand up. And I remember very clearly, I think it was uh, uh, Ezra Taft Benson, comes over and embraced uh, uh, him. And they just stood there hugging. And there was absolute silence in the tabernacle. Well, we all stood and we watched. And there was born in my little teenage heart at that moment just a, such a fiery conviction that this man was a man of God. And that he was a prophet. And it was all true. And, and it leaves that mark that, that you're talking about, Joan. We, we have those experiences, and even if we don't remember the words after, we remember the mark that it leaves on our hearts, and we are forever changed. And we, and we have those experiences. Um, and so I think there is this, there is these, these moments where... Um, the babes did open their mouths and, and utter marvelous. What if this is? What if you're the parents of one of these kids? What effect does that have on you? You know, I was just hoping he'd sit through primary. You know, <laughs> and all at once you're hearing these celestial teachings come out of his mouth so great that you cannot even write them. Imagine what that family home evening is like the next week. Yeah. When Mormon is writing this, it seems like maybe he's is the Lord teaching him some of this on the side, and he's interjecting some of his own. He is. He is. So this isn't all taken from the record. No, 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 no. This is, and it, it makes you wonder what Mormon's looking at. I mean, if they couldn't write it, yeah. I mean, it's probably Nephi going, "Oh my gosh, you can't! Oh, whoa, wow, <laughs> wow!" Sounds like he's having the same experience. He might be. Right. Now, he may have had, again, he has more, and he was going to say, um, he was going to write the rest, and the, and the Lord said, nope, don't do it. Um, it but, uh, anyway. Okay, so there's the experience. I think this is a Pentecostal kind of thing. We have contemporary experiences with the Kirtland Temple and the people of that time. Walking out of the, of the Kirtland Temple on, after April 3rd, uh, 1836, and having that experience, the mushing, rushing mighty wind, and loving each other, and serving one another, and meetings were breaking out all over the place, and giving blessings to one another. There was just a tremendous closeness, and a bonding, and a love. And they believed the second coming was about to happen. So much so, though, that then they said, okay, now we're going to, you know, we just have that closeness of spirit and love and bonding. What needs to come next? The same thing had happened with the saints, and it happens with Zion every time. Now we should have all things in common, so that there will be no poor. And in essence, that's what's about to happen because it's what ha it is the next step. 19. And they taught and did minister one to another, and they had all things in common among them, every man dealing justly with one another. This is the next step to this kind of experience when you're that filled. Okay? All right. Um, And I've got it 
in Acts, I put it right above verse 19. And all that believed to, were together, they had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. Okay? Uh, yeah? Kevin, I believe I had an experience like that yesterday that you were describing when the, the primary children gave you a program. Yeah. And and every little kid gave a little talk. It was like he had a little cold of fire on his head and what they spoke was words that were highly honorable. It was so beautiful. I, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, we, we get they they teach and you just and it's coming from their heart. Yeah, I think so too. That's a good point, Jim. Yeah. Strange question in this class. I can't hardly believe that. When you when you talk when you when you read verse nineteen. Uh huh. I am thinking like. It's a, it's a Latter-day Saints, modern Latter-day Saints. We have our Pentecost moment in the Kirkland, Kirkland uh -huh. time. In Kirkland, right. But why they they were not required in the Book of Mormon and the, the, the before in the Acts, they, they were not being taught or given the law of... Consecration? Yes, but we... Then without that law, they're able to reach that status. And uh, what about us? We, I don't feel like we we're doing that today. Uh, you mean today, us? I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My question is why why they're not the the um, the the process they've been taught. I I can't see they've been taught the law of consecration. But they can reach that immediately after the Pentecost experience. In and uh, what about us? And what's the how we uh, what's the uh, learning curve? Uh, learning. <laughs> I don't know if you. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, when we 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 taught the law of concentration in the temple, but we're not required to to, to live it currently. Right, right now. Yes. We're not ready yet, but but we already have Pentecost. Yeah, yeah. Let, 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 let's approach it this way, Judy. Because um, I think that's a good point. This dispensation, I really believe in some ways the dispensation um, in the fullness of times began with the Kirtland Temple dedication when all the keys are now brought and the response to the keys from Moses and Abraham and all of that kind of stuff and now we have a temple it's like the dispensation really starts in full from that moment on and they have their Pentecost moment and before that they had been trying to live the law of consecration and really messing it up living it poorly. They were trying, bless their hearts, but they could never pull it off, both in Kirtland and, and in Missouri. They messed up both places. Uh, where it really kind of came together for them was in, the, was in the six months after the Pentecost experience in Kirtland, but now then the, the Safety Society shows up and it, and it really kind of messes all that up. So hold on to the idea about where we, what that requires of us. Yeah. Okay, here, here, here's the problem, here's one of the problems that I see. Um, um, we, have, we have in our... There. 
Here, here's our, our, our problem is how we see us and we see the world, okay? Think about how this works these days. Uh, if I have, I have my house and I bought my house and I have a little bit of land around my house, my land and my house, and, and then I, I buy stuff and I put it inside my house. That's my kingdom. There it is. My TV, my desk, you know, is in my house. My favorite chair. Now, the, the Constitution of the United States, as with uh, and so many other governments around the world, says, that's my house. If somebody decides that they want to come into my, my house and take my stuff, that's illegal, because that's his stuff. If they're going to come in and take my stuff, the, if they say, okay, we went to your house and you stole his chair, and that we found your chair, we found his chair in your house and you took it, that's against the law to take other people's stuff. So we're actually going to arrest you. And if it was a big enough stuff, then we're going to, that's a felony, and we're going to put you in prison for a while. That's breaking and entering. Breaking and entering where? Into somebody else's, into their property. Okay, we're going to protect that. Okay, it's your property. Nobody can take it from you. Unless it's the government and it's eminent domain, and that's another topic for another time, and it's so wrong. But, that's my stuff. Okay? Now, here, here's how we've transferred this. Okay, this is my stuff, and if I've worked really hard, I've gone to school, and I, or I started a business, or I did some things, I may have a bigger house than you. I, so, me big house, you small house, because of what I do, you small house, okay? But, but, how, but then you can say, okay, but when I get to heaven, what do we get in heaven? In my father's house, or what? Many, mansions. Many mansions. Oh, how about that? Okay, and, and, if we are, and if we are righteous, how big's our house? It's big, right? So even though I didn't get the big house, I don't have a house in Malibu in this life because I did my visiting teaching faithfully and I took care of and I, you know, and I taught that primary class of the snotty little kids that wouldn't listen to me and everything, but I did it with a good attitude and everything. I will have, when I get to heaven, I get, I'm going to, that's right, and you, don't you picture it, you know? In, in common parlance, here's St. Peter. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Okay, let's take you down to uh, Exaltation Street. Okay, that's right. She's on 300 Exaltation Street. Okay, that, that, that little house, okay, that's Bill Gates. <laughs> but look at your house. <laughs> you have the mansion. It has... Ten swimming pools, you know, and uh, <laughs> because you taught the primary class. <laughs> so even though we don't get it here, we are going to go to heaven and get the celestial mansions waiting for us on high. That is our reward, because that's our only paradigm. Is it works here? It must work there, right? Now. The problem is it doesn't always work that way, does it? If if you have um, Nancy, you, you've been uh, Young Women's President. 
Uh, award, young men's. No, actually, not award. You've never been okay, but you know what? Though from from, from from the stake level, you would get this, okay? Because I've had this happen in my office quite a bit. They'll say, "Brother Hinckley, um, I was the I was the ward young young women's president, and I loved those kids, and we did this and this and this and this and this, and then I got released, and then they put in another young women's president, and what happens?" She's screwing it up. <laughs> She's messing up my class. <laughs> and I had those girls. And, and, and by the way, the girls will play into this. And, oh, Sister Black, we miss you. You know, <laughs> you know she's good. You know, but she's, she's not you. It's like, I know, I know, and this is my class. Tell me, tell me we don't take some possessiveness even in, in church settings. I remember when they, they put me in the bishopric and I said, wait a minute, I have to give up my seminary class? Well, yeah, no, that's my seminary class. These are my kids, dang it. Who take me away from my kids? I own them. <laughs> They're mine. <laughs> I've got them trained. They decorate my van with toilet paper in the middle of the night. <laughs> Remember that one? Not my children, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Your children were the ringleaders. <laughs> okay. But when it so when it comes to so our only paradigm is the idea that we own stuff, it is ours. And then we say, okay, now the if you're gonna be do all those things, you're gonna become meek, and the meek inherit what? Ah, inherit the earth. Along with who? Everyone else. Every, along with everybody else. <laughs> you mean we're all gonna own the same earth? Yeah, basically. So where so where in heaven is your ten acres? Well, I should have mine, right? And that's and again, that's my property line. Remember the confusion, confusion for the Native Americans when um, they might have, as they were, especially the roving tribes of, of the plains, and they would have their their teepee, and they would have they, they would have their woman and their and their horse and their bow. But where was their land? Everywhere. The land had belonged to everybody. And so what was so confusing is when uh, the white men are showing up and they're going to they're gonna stake out their ranch for their cattle, what are they doing? <laughs> they're putting up fences. Outside of the, inside of this is mine. Outside of this is not mine. But you can't come into my... And, and by the way, I not you know I own a ranch in Texas. I might I might own you know thousands and thousands and thousands of acres with a fence around it. I've now fenced it. It is now mine. Yeah. So the the idea among them was we don't understand this idea of ownership over stuff that all belongs to all of us. Okay. So from a law of consecration standpoint, let, 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 and we take a look at how this works, we go, okay, there's this natural tendency in the part of people that have had a Pentecost experience to now we're going to share things together. 
and and so it's going to be um, like um, hopping over here to Moses 19 the fear of the Lord was on all nations great was the glory of the Lord uh, they were blessed upon the mountains and the high places and the Lord called his people Zion verse 18 because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them why okay Here's how the so tell me the difference between ownership and stewardship. Under ownership, I have ownership over what? My my little stuff. Okay. What is stewardship? I'm a custodian over. The property. The, the property, and who's the b pr property belong to? To the, to the Lord. It's His stuff. Everything. I'm a steward, and it's my responsibility to take care of it. Now, if that now that means that I'm going to have uh, the idea with the way it would work. Let's say that I have uh, I'm giving a stewardship over ten acres of the Lord's land, and it's my job to develop this thing. <coughs> but so I develop it, and it produces really well. But Cindy and I are empty nesters, and, and, this, and this farm produces tons of stuff. Now what happens at the end of harvest? Yeah, I'm, gonna, I, I will, I, I'm given sufficient for my family's needs. And then what about the part that I don't need? We're going to give it to the family that has other other stuff over here, and they are going to they're going to we're going to lop part of that off because I don't need more than that, and they're going to develop that over there, unless it turns out that I am so good at what I'm doing that we can actually benefit a lot of people by having me manage that. But it's still but there still is a moment where I'd have to say okay. Uh, I developed this, it's wonderful, and we now have this new family that's moved in, and we're going to give them a stewardship of the other five acres. Now, doesn't that strike a little bit against our capitalistic idea? Certainly would put government welfare out of business. It would put government welfare out of business, yeah. That's a hand. Yeah. With stewardship and accountability, it's like a father's children. They're spiritually his. We have children, but we act like we own them. Yeah. Really, we are stewards of them because in reality, we're tied to Heavenly Father and we're accountable. We are. For being a steward. Sure. Okay. And so that's this idea here. It's this natural thing that begins to come. And I, I think it is the very next step that when we have these knitting of hearts, that the next thing is, is that so much of the anger and, and division comes as we have a, have a difference in who's rich and who's not, that the very next step is we're going to somehow reach out and make sure that there are no poor. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that maybe you should have passed the envelope after you talked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to pass this thing again, guys. <laughs> Remember, this is humanitarian aid, and these people lost their homes in the floods. <laughs> You're good. Yeah. There's a ward 
up near Denton, in that area where the example you gave happened. There's a family that is trying to provide for, uh, their means the best they can, and the dad can plant and garden, and another family had acreage that they just didn't need to use, so they offered him their acreage to come over and plant whatever they needed. Really? Well, the spirit of that in this ward, where there are other families that have acreage, they started looking around and saying to young families, if you want to come and farm our area and have your children learn how to garden, the produce is yours. Well, they're setting up little uh, markets, some of the children are, to earn their money for clothing, and it's spread throughout the whole ward, where that whole ward now is looking, how can we help? And where there were the wealthy families, where some of them looking at the young families moving into subdivisions and saying you're ruining this area by building your small homes, the spirit has changed to how can we bond and how can we help them? I like that. that that's good. Isn't that the idea? Think about the, the knitted closeness on that. Now, the, the problem that we had when, again, when we were trying to live the law of consecration prior to this Pentecost thing, it didn't go so red hot. Um, then, then we get to Utah and, and the law of consecration in Orderville and a number of other places, they try that again. And it worked for a while, but we're still pretty mortal and we're still not living Zion in every other way and it's going to be pretty hard economically to have all things in common. That's part, part of why we're not, we're just not set up yet to be able to do that. Tim? Just a thought. Um, even though, even though we have stewardship of certain areas right now, in the ideal scheme of things, the church would really have the stewardship. Yeah. Through the bishops and the bishops, rather than me just going and saying, "Hey, you have some land," we would go to the bishop, or the bishop would come to us. Do you, know what I, do you know what really struck me too as I was, as I was, well, I was thinking about this the, this lesson was on my mind as I'm coming up and I'm unlocking the church door this morning and I'm looking at this beautiful building and, and, and I started looking around and I thought who owns this building? The Lord does and the church administers it. Who are stewards over this building? The, the wards to a certain extent, it's the really wards that attend in this building. And how are we responsible for this? Well, we come in and clean it. We take care of it. Uh, we, we own this together. It's this joint ownership, if you will, or joint stewardship to take care of this beautiful edifice and make sure that it's available uh, to, be, uh, to worship in. Yeah? I've noticed that as we shifted the, this uh, opportunity to clean the building, like when you cleaned it, you go, oh, I want to keep that. I want to keep this clean. I want to keep yes. it nice. It's like, you feel like a, like a part of it. You do, and you take some ownership in it, but we're really taking stewardship. Okay, so in the time we have remaining, let, let me, so now let's take this, you take this feeling where you have these spiritual experiences, it knits you together as people, now you move forward, and, and if the conditions are right, you can actually do it as a people. And, and have th all things in common. But now let's look at, at 3 Nephi 27. 
because I think there's another area where this really kind of connects. Um, and it came to pass that the disciples of Jesus were journeying and were preaching the things which they had heard and seen and were baptizing in the name of Jesus. It came to pass the disciples were gathered together and united in mighty prayer and fasting. Now we come in terms of the stewardship and, the, and, and our callings among Zion. How do we make decisions? How do we determine what needs to happen? How do we do that? Um, one of the... Um, couple of quotes. President David O. McKay. Zion we build will pattern after the ideals of its inhabitants. To change men in the world we must change their thinking. For the thing which a man really believes is the thing which he has really thought. That which he really thinks is the thing he lives. Men do not go beyond their ideals. Let that one sink in. Men do not go beyond their ideals. They often fall short of them, but they never go beyond them. The foundation of Zion will then be laid in the hearts of men. Broad acres, mines, forests, factories, beautiful buildings, modern conveniences will be but means and accessories to the building of the human soul and the securing of happiness. So this sense of unity starts in here and then it extends out. Okay. All right. Uh, good question. I'm not going to take time to answer it because I want to finish with these others. How do we balance unity with individuality and diversity? There's a question, right? I got to be me. What does that mean? Yeah. And we struggle with the differences. We very well can, yeah. Well, there's that song about how, you know, there's a symphony we each have our parts. Yeah, wasn't that a great one? Uh, Elder Holland. Okay, so, so let me just... Um, one of the... Uh, and we've talked about this before. Um, one of the uh, most powerful moments in my... Certainly in my experience, just as I'm coming off of my mission... Um, was, and I just struggled with it, and I've mentioned this before, that uh, my last Christmas in the mission field, uh, this, is, uh, this is, so this would be December of 1977, uh, I spent that with a wonderful, wonderful black family. And uh, they and they just loved us as missionaries and and served us this great Christmas meal. We were with them an awful lot of that day, and I just loved the heck out of these guys. And then having to then sometime in the week after uh, teach them the lesson about the restriction of the priesthood was hard on them and hard on me. And I boy, I struggled with that. And I just how do I explain it? How do I justify it? How do I and I, I just didn't know what to do with that. And so, and, and, and uh, not long after that, uh, they decided that they just weren't quite ready yet to, to jump into that. And, and I understood. I, I, I totally got it. Um, so I come home from my uh, mission, and then just uh, five months later uh, comes this incredible experience. Uh, 
Now, uh, Bruce R. McConkie had probably been one of the most uh, outspoken uh, explainers of the policy. How and why and when and all that. Mormon doctrine, the old Mormon doctrine was full of and I remember looking at Mormon doctrine trying to somehow get ready to teach a lesson to this wonderful family that week after Christmas. And, and um, Elder McConkie says, it was a glorious June day in 1978. We were all together in an upper room of the Salt Lake Temple. We were engaged in fervent prayer, pleading with the Lord to manifest His mind and will concerning those who are entitled to receive His holy priesthood. President Kimball himself was mouth, offering the desires of his heart and of our hearts to that God whose servants we are. We're not owners, we are stewards. It was one of those rare and seldom experienced times when the disciples of the Lord are perfectly united, when every heart beats as one and the same spirit burns in every bosom. I have, I have thought since that our united prayer must have been like that of the Nephite disciples, the Lord's twelve in that day, who were gathered together and united in mighty prayer and fasting to learn the name that the Lord had given to his church. In their day, the Lord came personally to answer their petition. In our day, he sent his spirit to deliver the message. As it was with the Nephite brethren of old, so it was with us. We too had come together in the spirit of true worship and the unity of desire. We were all fasting. There was a marvelous outpouring of unity, oneness, and agreement in council. The session continued for somewhat more than two hours. Then President Kimball suggested we unite in formal prayer and said modestly, if it was agreeable with the rest of us, he would act as voice. It was during that prayer the revelation came. The Spirit of the Lord rested mightily upon us. We felt something akin to what happened in the day of Pentecost and at the de dedication of the Kirtland Temple. From the midst of eternity, the voice of God, conveyed by the power of the Spirit, spoke to his prophet. The message was that the time had now come. You recall that they, they then uh, prepare a press release and they give it to, uh, the, uh, to KSL, uh, N. Eldon Tanner does, but tells them to hold off because they had another meeting. With who? All the general authorities in the upper room of the Salt Lake Temple. All of the 70, all of the assistants of the 12, they were all there. And you remember that uh, President Kimball got up and as he started to spoke, Neil Maxwell was sitting in the midst and he said, suddenly I knew what it was and I could support it and it just filled me. And President Kimball announced, read the, read the statement and, uh, and he said, but I'm not willing to go forward unless I have complete unity of all the brethren. I've got to have a complete vote and wholehearted, wholehearted support. And he asked for a, a raise of hands. He had a full-hearted, everybody sustained that, that move. And then he turned to Elder Tanner and he said, go tell the world. 
Elder Tanner, then, or President Tanner then called KSL and said, release it. But it came out of a sense of unity that, there, that President Kimball needed to make sure that there was a unitedness among everybody on this. Okay? So finally, let me finish with Elder Oaks. Because we, we just had a similar one. The inspiration identifying the need for a proclamation on the family came to the leadership of the church over 23 years ago. It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without restatement. Nevertheless, we felt the confirmation and we, and we went to work. Subjects were identified and discussed by members of the Quorum of the Twelve for nearly a year. Language was proposed, re reviewed, and revised. Prayerfully, we continually pleaded with the Lord for His inspiration as to what we should say and how we should say it. We all learned line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Lord has promised. The idea of, of at times as a church we need to be united is, is a challenge because we come from different political stripes, we come from different experiences, uh, we have uh, you know, different uh, economic standpoints and yet we're to be united. And that's hard. That, that is really a challenge. And yet the spirit can only be unrestrained if everybody is united as one. And I think it's going to be our biggest challenge as we move forward as a church, how to stay united in the midst of increasing attacks on all sides. Uh, and yet, the promises are there, uh, and our ability to teach the children uh, so that we can care, so we have a chance to have small moment Pentecostal experiences in our own lives, in our own families. That's, so that's my goal for us. Well, I'm just going to call them mini Pentecosts. Do we have a chance to have many Pentecost experiences, sitting and listening to a general conference talk and then turning it off and looking at each other and say, do you feel that? I feel the same. How about you? I feel that. Yes. And we have those moments that burn in our heart and, uh, and, and leave us with a memory that we can draw on in the, in the future. And I, I pray that we can do that and I leave that with you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. President, could we call on you for a closing prayer? Probably finish.